It's been said that a picture is worth a thousand what? That's right. A picture is worth a thousand words. And I think the saying is true. But I think the opposite is also true. That a single word can paint a thousand pictures. In fact, let's do this. I'm gonna say a single word and I'll give us a few seconds to think about that word and let's see how many pictures that word paints in our minds, okay? So here's the word, ready? Seattle. Seattle, think about it. Think about it. Who thought of the Space Needle? Who thought of Pike's Place Market? Who thought of that disgusting gum wall? <laughs> Who thought of the Seattle Center Fountain? Just me, all right. Oh, okay. Who thought of the Fremont Troll? Uh, one. Who thought of UW, the University of Washington? Who thought of Northwest Native American artwork? Who thought of that strange, alternative, surrealist kind of artwork Seattle is known for? Who thought of grunge music? Who thought of salmon? Puget Sound? Anybody? Okay. Who thought of coffee? I know some of you are waiting for that one. Coffee. Who thought of a particular memory from a time you've been to Seattle? Who thought of all those times you've told people you're from Seattle, even though you're really from Stanwood? <laughs> Liars! <laughs> Just kidding. And who thought of something I didn't say? Right? I'm sure our minds could be flooded with unending pictures and memories and thoughts of Seattle forever. And that's because a single word can paint a thousand pictures. And that's because words are powerful. Words are powerful. Sometimes they transport us to another world. Sometimes they inspire us to great things. Sometimes they seem to find us when we're feeling lost. Sometimes they comfort us when we're hurting. And sometimes they're what crushed us to pieces in the first place. Proverbs 18.21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Words are powerful. And I think the most powerful use of words is in poetry. Poetry is a unique composition of words that have been chosen carefully and arranged artistically, maybe with rhymes, maybe with a rhythm or meter, maybe with repetition, alliteration, Simile, synecdoche, metonymy, allegory, irony, parallelism, symbol, metaphor, hyperbole, vividness, descriptiveness, etc., etc., in an attempt to express something in a way that our normal use of words just can't do. If you've ever been in a situation where you couldn't find words to express how you felt about something, but you tried to give some kind of verbal substance to the shadows of your feelings and emotions, then you may have stumbled into poetry. 
and poetic speech. It's like when I married Natalie, and she's over in junior church, so she won't be horrified to hear me talk about her in the service. But it's like when I married Natalie, and people asked me, how's the married life? And I had to say something, but, but I knew that my answer, it's great, such a blessing, was so woefully inadequate to even begin to express how I really felt about seeing God's providential hand over our whole relationship and, and how I really felt about coming to love a person more than I ever knew was possible and how I felt about God's graciousness in giving me such a sweet gift that I do not deserve to have. And so I tried. I tried to give better words to my feelings. <laughs> and what the result was, was a poem. Sometimes time stands still and I see behind her smile the smile of another. And so now when people ask me, how's the married life? I say, sometimes time stands still. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, just kidding. But poetry is always pushing words to their limits in an attempt to try to express the inexpressible in this way. I think the poet is like a voyager into the final frontier of the language universe, boldly going where few have gone before. <laughs> now, I know what some of you may be thinking, give me a stinking break, Dylan. <laughs> this is ridiculous. I didn't come to church this morning to hear about poetry. And to that, I would say, did you know that about a third of this book is poetry? About a third of this book is poetry. And so, if God has filled his word with poems, then maybe we, as his image bearers, need to give some thought to the place of poetry in our thinking and feeling and expressing. And that's exactly what we're gonna do this morning because as we continue in our journey through the minor prophets, we now come to the prophet Micah, who is undoubtedly the poet among the prophets. And his, his book is basically just one giant poem with incredible imagery and word pictures and gut-wrenching emotion. So we're gonna look at the book of Micah and we'll talk about its relevance to us today. But before we do, let's just pray and ask God to bless our time in his word together. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illuminate your word, providing vision and clarity, opening our eyes to see what you desire for us to see. And Lord, we ask that by your grace, your word would not only touch our minds and our intellects, but would also touch our hearts and our souls and our affections and our desires and our imaginations and that we'd see our Savior and bring glory to him this morning. Amen. So before we get into the book, I've got to admit that as I've been reading through Micah, I've come to realize that it is not an easy book to understand. <laughs> uh, there are several references, several references to things that 
don't make sense unless you're familiar with the historical context in which the book was written. And there are some things that don't make sense unless you know Hebrew or you have a good commentary that explains the Hebrew. And sometimes the tense changes suddenly, meaning Micah could be speaking in the past tense and then in the next breath he could be speaking in the present or the future tense. And sometimes who is speaking changes suddenly. And sometimes the topic or the tone changes suddenly. And on top of all of that, the whole thing's a poem. So you have to be familiar with different types of poetic devices and interpret Micah's words accordingly. Here's an example before we start. In Micah chapter three, verses two and three, he addresses the leaders of Israel as, look at line, second line there, as those who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. So, welcome to church this morning. <laughs> now, now, either Micah is either Micah is saying that the leaders of Israel have literally become cannibals, or what is actually the case, Micah is using the language of cannibalism to symbolically describe the destructiveness he sees by the injustices being committed by Israel's leaders. So, all this to say that Micah is sometimes a little tough to figure out. However, when it is understood, it proves to be a truly beautiful book, even when it's ugly. Micah has an impressive poetic ability to not only drag the reader down into the depths of some of Scripture's lowest lows as he describes human depravity and God's wrath against sin, but I think also to lift the reader up to soar among some of Scripture's highest highs as he describes God's mercy and redemption and restoration. So, with that introduction, let's move to the book's introduction, which is the only verse of the book that is not poetry, verse one. Go ahead and turn there. Micah chapter one, verse one. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So, the book begins with introducing us to this prophet Micah, whose name can be translated as a rhetorical question, who is like Yahweh? And interestingly, the book ends in uh, chapter seven, verse 18, with Micah saying to God, who is a God like you? So, if you can imagine that Micah's prophecy is like a row of books on a bookshelf, the words, who is like our God, are the bookends. They're the weighted supports holding this whole thing together, which should shift our focus primarily onto God himself and only secondarily onto other characters in the book. So Micah is primarily a book about God. And verse one says that Micah prophesied during the reign of the Judean kings uh, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, so this was somewhere between 750 and 687 BC during the time of the divided kingdom of Israel. And it says that he prophesied to Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom, Israel, 
and Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom, Judah. Now, as I've been reading through Micah, trying to figure out a way to outline this book, because as I said before, there are a lot of sudden twists and turns which makes the flow of the book a little hard to find and then a little hard to follow, uh, I have discovered that within the twists and turns of the book, there is a single unifying conversation that unfolds. So instead of outlining the book in the traditional way, you know, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, I thought it would be more helpful to outline the book a little more thematically by drawing from every part of the book and putting it all together and then showing, hopefully, how this conversation ultimately unfolds. So, if you turn your attention to the wall, here's where we're going. After the introduction, we see God's coming judgment upon the wicked, and then we see Micah's response to God's coming judgment upon the wicked. Then we see the incurable wound of the wicked, which refers to their idolatry and injustice and insurrection. And then we see the details of God's coming judgment upon the wicked. And then we see God's promises for the remnant. And then we see the wicked's response to God's coming judgment. And then we see Micah's prayer to God. Oh, Micah's response to God's coming judgment. Then we see Micah's prayer to God. Then we see God's response to Micah's prayer. And then lastly, we see Micah's response to God's response to Micah's prayer. <laughs> so, firstly, after the introduction, we see God's coming judgment upon the wicked, chapter one, verses two through five. It says this. Hear you peoples, all of you, Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters pour down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? So God is calling the whole earth to witness the mountain-melting, valley-splitting, holy outpouring of his divine wrath upon every high place. And high places were literally these elevated pieces of land on top of which would be altars and pillars and carved images, all in dedication to the worship of false gods. And God identifies these cities of Samaria and Jerusalem as these wicked places. And I think it's often the big cities, the Samarias and Jerusalems, or we might say the Seattles and Jacksonvilles, which are the springs from which sociocultural influences flow and trends are set for the rest of the world to follow. But no city, no Sodom, no Samaria, no Seattle, no Stanwood can withstand the holy wrath of God when he says, enough is enough. I will bring them to nothing. 
who is like our God. And then we hear Micah's response to God's coming judgment upon the wicked, verses eight and nine A. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches, for her wound is incurable. And in chapter seven, verses one and two A, Micah says this. He says, woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. Micah is deeply troubled over this incurable wound of sin and the disappearance of godliness and the wrath of God that will befall his people. And he tries. He tries to put his feelings into better words and he says, it makes me feel like like a vineyard that has become a fruitless and barren wasteland on the inside. So, what exactly is this sin, this incurable wound of the wicked? Well, Micah mentions many specific sins, but I think they all fall into one of three major categories. Idolatry, injustice, and insurrection, which basically means rebellion, but I'm calling it insurrection so that they'll all be alliterative, I words. <laughs> Uh, So firstly, Micah talks about his people's idolatry. And for the sake of time, I'll give you the scripture references, if you can see that small text up there. And uh, if you wanna look those up later. And I'll just tell you right now that Micah mentions high places, carved images, idols, divination, which is essentially witchcraft, sorceries, fortune tellers, pillars, think totem poles, and the bowing down to the works of one's own hands, which is to worship one's own creations rather than the creator. And secondly, Micah talks about his people's injustice. He mentions the seizing of other people's property, homes, inheritances, and clothing, and the driving of widows from their homes and the harming of their children, and the brutal injustices committed by Israel's leaders, and the detesting of justice, and the making crooked of all that is straight, and the building of cities with blood and iniquity, and unjust bribes, and treasures that are acquired by deceit, and violence, and lies, and walking in wicked counsel, and man's enemies being the members of their own home. And thirdly, Micah talks about his people's insurrection, their rebellion against God and his word. And he mentions prostitution, and the devising of wickedness, and the working of evil, and the shutting up of God's prophets, and the willful belief of false prophecy, and the hatred of good and love of evil, and the committing of evil deeds, and the uttering of the evil desires of one's soul. And then we see God's coming, uh, the details of God's coming judgment upon the wicked. Chapter one, verses six and seven says this, Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap 
a heap of rubble in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. And in chapter 1, verse 15a, God says, I will again bring a conqueror to you. And we learn in chapter 5 that this conqueror is Assyria. And in chapter 2, verse 10a, it says, Arise and go into exile, for this is no place to rest. And chapter 3, verse, verse 4, talks about God hiding his face from his people. And chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, talk about God stopping speaking to his people. And chapter 3, verse 12a says, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And chapter 4, verse 10a says, Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. Now, if you've been around Cedarholm as we've been looking through the Minor Prophets, you know exactly what Micah's talking about here. Because you know that in 722 BC, God sent the Assyrians to conquer and exile the northern kingdom of Israel because of their sin. And you know that in 586 BC, God sent the Babylonians to do the exact same thing to Judah. Who is like our God? But through all this darkness of sin and impending doom, we begin to see little glimmers of light begin to creep into the shadows in God's promises for the remnant. Now, what's a remnant? Well, the word she'erith literally means leftover or that which is left over. Now, this word would not refer to the kid who gets picked last for kickball. That's to be left over in a different sense. In biblical terms, the remnant refers to those who, by God's grace alone, survive God's judgment. So let's look at a couple passages and see if this concept becomes a little clearer. Uh, in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, God says this. He says, I will surely assemble all of you, all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through it and pass the gate, going out by it. The king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. What a beautiful passage. God is saying that though judgment will come and his people will be exiled, afterwards he will gather all of Jacob, all the remnant, and lead them out of exile as their shepherd king. But here's a question. If the word remnant by definition means leftover, then what does it mean 
when God says that he will gather all of Jacob. Doesn't the word all mean no leftovers and preclude the idea of a remnant? Here's the answer. Romans chapter nine, verse six. Not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Meaning, not all who were children of Abraham according to the flesh, according to their Jewish ancestry, were children of Abraham according to the promise, according to their faith and actually knowing and loving and following the Lord. Meaning, there were many Israelites who were born into the covenant community of God and identified with the people of God, but they never really knew God at all. They never had a real relationship with God. They were never really one of God's people. They weren't the true Israel of God. So these promises for the remnant and all Israel were for those who were truly Israel, those who truly knew God and truly loved God and truly belonged to God. They would survive God's judgment and would be led out of exile by their shepherd king. Let's look at another passage, chapter four, verses one through seven. It says this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks, Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant, and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. So, in the latter days, which is looking forward to sometime in the future, masses of people will flow to the house of the Lord, meaning they will come to know and worship Yahweh, and not the false gods they formerly worshiped. And how will this begin to happen? The text says that the law and the word of the Lord shall go out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Question, has this happened yet? Yes, it has. Pastor Dan's been preaching through the book of Acts and what we see in the book of Acts is the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and to where? The ends of the earth. This prophecy in Micah has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled today. 
But then the text says that there will be no more war but peace. And no more fear of other men but fear of the Lord. And God's people will walk together in his name forever and ever. And they will be a nation unto the Lord who will reign over them forevermore. Question, has this happened yet? Not yet. But this day will come. And the rest of Micah's prophecy will be fulfilled. Let's look at a couple other passages. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 10b. It says, There, or from there, from Babylon, you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So God is coming to rescue and redeem. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. It says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Did you catch that? The one whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, who will come to rule over his people Israel forever, will come from that little town of Bethlehem. Who might that be? And just a few verses down, look at verses four and five A, it says, it, it says of this ruler, and he, this ruler, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they, his people, shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. Who is this shepherd king? And who is like our God? And then we hear the wicked's response to God's coming judgment. Look at chapter six, verses six and seven. They say this. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Do you sense a little bit of a that's not fair attitude here? To me, these hyperbolic phrases thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil and talk of child sacrifice which God does not command all seem to be bringing a charge against God for being totally unreasonable. And if that's the case then the wicked are saying to God, God you are not a just God. Of course there's a bit of irony in that attitude and statement because it's true that God has not been fair. Instead, he's been incredibly gracious and merciful. And it's true that God has not dealt with the wicked as their sin deserves and it doesn't make a whole lot of reasonable sense. And God has not pounded the gavel of his justice And how do we know? Because the wicked, whose sin has earned them nothing but the 
wage of death is still alive and breathing to talk about it. And then we hear Micah's response to the wicked's response to God's coming judgment. Chapter six, verse eight. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This is probably the most famous passage of the whole book, Micah chapter six, verse eight. But Micah is basically just repeating something God said to Cain in Genesis. And something David said in the Psalms. And something Solomon said in the Proverbs. And something Samuel said. And something Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea said. And something Keith Green said in the opening lines of a song that really got my attention when I was in high school. Maybe you know it. To obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your money. I want your life. To obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your fill in the blank. I want you. See, the reason God desires our obedience more than occasional sacrifices is because the way that God desires for us to live our lives is as living sacrifices, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, humble existences lived under the lordship of God for the good of others, doing justice, loving kindness, and for the glory of God. And the amazing thing is that when we obey God, we reflect and image him as we were created to do. And his glory is displayed in us. What an incredible thing that we're invited to to participate in. Who is like our God? In the last chapter, chapter seven, we see Micah's prayer to God, verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. And how does God respond? Next verse, verse 15. As in the days, the days of old, when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. God says, remember the exodus, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the pillars of fire and cloud. I'm gonna show my people marvelous things like that. Who is like our God? Now what's interesting is that we know from history that the return of God's people from exile to the promised land included no such miracles like those which were seen in Egypt. So, this promise must have kept God's people looking forward to something yet to come. And lastly, we see Micah's response to God's response to Micah's prayer. Chapter seven, verses 18 through 20. We're at the end of the bookshelf here. Who is a God like you, 
Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins, all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. I think that this is absolutely the most beautiful passage of the whole book because Micah shows us here that the basis of all our hope is in the character of God. Iniquities would not be pardoned. Transgressions would not be passed over. Iniquities would not be tread underfoot. Sins would not be cast into the depths of the sea. And there would be no remnant if it was not in God's character to show grace and mercy and patience and love and faithfulness to sinful man. At the end of the day, all our hope, all our hope is in who God is. This is the message of Micah, and I'll say it again. Who is like our God? But with that being said, some of the details of this message make no sense. At least if I were a member of the original Old Testament audience who heard this prophecy, I would not understand it. And I wouldn't understand it because I'd be familiar with the Old Testament sacrificial system and how sins were dealt with. And that does not square at all with this casting all our sins into the depths of the sea language. See, the sacrificial system in the, of the Old Testament was horrifying. If you were here when I preached on the book of Leviticus a few months ago, you may recall how, how nauseating it was to to see these repeated sacrifices for sin over and over and over, day after day after day, year after year after year, and the endless duty of the priests to spill more and more and more blood to cover sin. Because the truth is that animal sacrifices, while symbolizing the payment for sin, never actually completely accomplished it. Because if they did, then the Israelites wouldn't have had to keep making these sacrifices every single day. The whole sacrificial system seemed to cry out for an actual complete atonement for sin. But this is precisely the kind of language we see here at the end of Micah. He uses the imagery of all the sins of the remnant being drowned and put to death like the Egyptians when the waves came crashing back down upon them, wiping them all out completely. How would the sins of God's people be atoned for and put to death forever? That would be my lingering question after reading Micah if I were an ancient Israelite. Well, 
there is a single word Micah gives us, which I think is the key to unlocking this great mystery. Would you like to know that word? Well, let me ask you this. What pictures are painted in your mind when you hear the word Bethlehem? Bethlehem, think about it. Do you think of that little town Mary and Joseph found themselves in when Mary was expecting or were ready to give birth? Do you think of that baby whom the angel Gabriel said would be called son of the most high? Do you think of that baby born in a dirty feeding trough because there was no room at the inn? Do you think of that multitude of angels glorifying and praising God, saying glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased? Do you think of the shepherds and the wise men and the gold, the frankincense and the myrrh, the praising, the worshiping, and the adoring? Do you think of Christmas? Micah prophesied over 700 years in advance the birthplace of the one whose coming forth was from of old, from ancient days, who had come to rule over his people, the true Israel of God, forever, Jesus Christ. And who knew that in the providence of God, the key to unlocking this Old Testament book we're looking at today, found in chapter five, verse two, would ultimately be the very thing we're celebrating this week. Wow, Christmas, who is like our God? Only Jesus, the shepherd king, word of the Father, now in flesh appearing, would come to lead his sheep, the remnant, out of exile into eternity. And only Jesus is able to save, for he alone is worthy, for he alone is worthy, for he alone is worthy because he alone lived a life of perfect, sinless obedience before God the Father, the life that you and I ought to live but cannot. And only Jesus took upon himself the mountain-melting, valley-splitting, holy outpouring of God's wrath to heal the remnant of their incurable wound of sin by making an actual, complete atonement, paying it all, far as the curse is found, by dying the death, they should have died in their place. And only Jesus can hold his remnant safe till the end. The judgment we no longer fear, his precious blood has brought us near. Rejoice, rejoice, for that blood speaks over us. God and sinners reconciled. And only Jesus is coming back again. And I say, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. 
For he is returning to rule the world in truth and grace and will make the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Who is like our God? Born that man no more may die. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. Now, in closing, I want to suggest that just as Micah's book is bookended by the words, who is like our God, and just as history and life and eternity is, was and is and will forever be bookended by these words as well, I think that we should deeply desire that our day-by-day, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute existences would be bookended by these words as well. And I think we should deeply desire that our lives be characterized by the character of God, that his glory might be displayed in us, and that more people might see Jesus through us. And if this is you this morning, and, and you want for your life to say, Gloria and Excelsis Deo, as we sang, glory to God in the highest, then here's just one application this morning, okay? Just one application. And I think it should be, it should exist as a subcategory in the obedience to God section. Here it is. Consider how you talk about Jesus and the gospel. Whether in verbal speech or written form, consider how you talk about Jesus and the gospel. See, I think, like Micah, we need to be thoughtful proclaimers of the reason for the hope that is in us. I think we need to talk about Jesus and the gospel in a way that guides our listeners into a kind of participation with our own experiences, seeking to recreate our experiences in their imaginations. And I think we need to talk about Jesus in the gospel in a way that doesn't just address the intellect with facts, but addresses the whole person, the heart, the soul, the affections, the desires, and the imagination with life. And I think we need to talk about Jesus and the gospel in a way that says things differently and more passionately and more powerfully than our ordinary use of language does. Exploiting every potential of language as we are able to maximize the range and force of our communication. I think we must strive to become poets for the glory of the God who is worthy of our deepest thoughts and our strongest emotions and the greatest verbal expressions we can give to them. And here's specifically why I think this should really matter to you and me today. Because the reality is that even as redeemed people, we are still living in a very dark and broken and fallen world in these bodies with minds and hearts that have been affected by sin. And for now, 
we see in a mirror dimly or through a glass darkly, the Apostle Paul says. Meaning, in a sense, our life on this side of heaven can sometimes be like looking through a frosty window on a cold winter's night. And we need help to see. We need for the sun to daily rise in our hearts and we need for its light to shine into the darkness and we need for its presence and warmth to melt away all that obscures our view of seeing what's really there. And I think this is precisely what good poetry aims to do, to, by the grace of God, bring reality into clearer view, giving substance to shadows. Consider the power of your words. They may help someone see the glory of God. And who did this best? Who was the best at bringing reality into clearer view, giving substance to shadows, helping people to see the glory of God? Not Micah, not any other biblical author, no. The author of life and the word of God, Jesus Christ, the ultimate and incarnational fact of reality who is to us a flowing fountain of infinite inspiration but also an anchor in that flood who keeps our poetry from floating away on waves of thoughtless emotion. So, may we labor to use our words to express glimpses of reality that take people beyond the ordinary, that more people, by the grace of God, might see what we've seen and feel what we have felt and say, as we have said today, who is like our God? Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this marvelous and masterful book of Micah, a book that ultimately points us forward to Jesus, and not only to the Jesus of Christmas 2,000 years ago, but also to the Jesus of that Christmas yet to come, when his second coming will bring joy to the whole world, that day when all your people will join together in that song that resounds from everlasting to everlasting, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And when creation itself, which Romans says now groans awaiting redemption, will, will breathe new life and sing, behold, he is making all things new. Oh Lord, help us to live in light of that day. We thank you, Lord, that for your people, it will be a day of celebration and rejoicing and not a day of judgment and the condemnation we deserve. Lord, we thank you for not dealing with us as our sin deserves, but in light of the Savior, Jesus. Lord, our only hope is in you, so we ask for grace to obey 
and grace to follow and grace to speak of your unfailing love for sinners like us. For your glory alone, amen.